This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. So far, 2019 has been the year of the initial public offering, or IPO. Some demonstrate healthy valuations for many of these companies. Financial analysts use a variety of formulas to reach that number, and they look primarily at the success the firm has already had. But what about the future success, and what about how customer behavior can impact that value? This is the approach being taken by Theta Equity Partners called Customer-Based Corporate Valuation. The co-founders of Theta Equity are Wharton Marketing Professor Pete Fader and also Emory University Assistant Professor of Marketing Dane McCarthy. And they join us now to discuss how customer behavior should play a role in valuations. Pete joining me in studio. Dan on the phone. Good to see you, Pete. It's always good to be part of a Dan sandwich. It is. Dan, always good to talk to a fellow Dan. Yeah, it's great to, great to be back on the line with you. Couldn't agree more. Th- thank you. Great to have you both with us. So I, I guess give us the idea, Pete, uh, Pete as-, as to how you came to really looking at customer value. I know you've you've wrote the book, Customer Centricity. Is it playing off of that a- as to where you are starting to build out this data looking at customer valuations? Very much so. I actually came to it from two different directions. One is the models themselves, the statistical models that I've been developing for my goodness, 33 years as a Wharton faculty member that uh, help us do a very good job of predicting how many customers are we going to acquire, how long are we going to hold on to them, what are they going to do over that horizon. So being able to predict customer behavior at a granular level and over long horizons, that's part one. Part two, you mentioned my books on customer centricity. Uh, Part of my goal has been to win over not just the marketing people, but the accounting and finance and supply chain across the organization. So for years, I've been talking about this idea of customer-based corporate valuation, but it was kind of conceptual. Like, Mm -hmm. hey, if we can project the future value of all of our customers and add all that up, that should be like the value of the firm. So I kind of put it out there more as just a kind of an idea, a motivation. And then I met Dan McCarthy, (laughs) who took some of these ideas and made them come to life for real, both in his academic work as a Ph.D. student here um, uh, and, of course, as a professor at Emory and through these two different startups that we've had. So so Dan can say more about how it really comes to life. Yeah, Dan, so take us into this importance of customer value and and corporate valuation. Yeah, so really uh, kind of at a high level, if you speak with – you know, an investment banker working on that on that IPO. Uh, you know, oftentimes they'll basically come up with some sort of IPO price uh, based on you know things like you know future revenue growth. And uh, you know, oftentimes these companies will be losing money, but they'll say, you know, our market size. You know, we've only penetrated our market you know two percent, and uh, you know if we're able to continue to to grow our share, uh, we're going to grow our way out of unprofitability. And we would say. Uh, yes, but maybe <laughs> it's really going to be a function of of how they're doing uh, after they've acquired uh, the customers that they brought in. Uh, if they have customers that you know, after they're acquired they stay around for a long time, and or uh, increase their relationship with the firm, you know, but spending more over time while they're alive, mm-hmm. yeah, that would be very supportive of you know, being able to to generate the operating leverage that they're going to need to grow their way out of unprofitability. And we've seen uh, a number of companies that uh, basically fit that bill, you know, that their unit economic profile uh, looks very good. Uh, but we've also seen a number of other companies where, you know, ostensibly they look almost the same. You know, they've got very similar revenue growth, uh, very similar penetration figures, 
Uh, but we kind of look at them from the bottoms up, you know, from the, the vantage point of customers. Uh, we see that they're not doing a very good job of being able to retain customers that uh, that they have brought in, or they're spending a lot more to, to bring them in, right. or you know, the the amount of, of revenue that they're generating from those customers uh, while they're alive is, is flat or down. And it's those latter companies that we'd be a little bit more skeptical about. So you know, the good thing is, you know, it hasn't really kind of come out, you know, systematically one way or the other. Uh, but you know, I think it really speaks to the fact that you know, not all revenue growth is created equal. And looking at the website, I was looking at the blog post that, that you've had over the last several months, and, and one caught my eye talking about this, talking about customer base corporate valuation. And this was uh, in 2018. It, you referred to it as a revolution. Why so? Uh, a couple of reasons. Number one, it is just a fundamentally different way of doing corporate valuation, uh, not just a, a tweak on it, not just a, a slight improvement on existing methods. I mean, it, it's coming from a completely different direction. So instead of doing things from top down, let's just look down at the revenue and come up with some multiplier or something to say what the company's worth. It really is, as Dan said, decomposing the revenue into the underlying uh, customer behaviors. So, so number one, it's just a completely different approach. Uh, but very often it does lead to consistent answers, which is great. But number two, it helps build a really great bridge between the folks in finance and the folks in marketing. It's really nice that we can take the same models that we would usually use to figure out which email we should send to which person at which time mm-hmm. and put them in the hands of the CFO. But it also goes the other way, that we, a CFO can start with these models for valuation purposes and then toss them over to the marketing person to say, now that we've bought this business or now that we have a sense of how healthy it is, um, let's align on, on uh, what, what our next step is. Do we need to bring in more customers or to uh, have them stay around longer? So there can be a complete connection and complete um, a standard set of metrics and models to be able to evaluate the actions that we take. Dan? Yeah, I think uh, you know, it's, kind of, it's a revolution in some ways, and in some ways it's the opposite. <laughs> That's, uh, it, it's a revolution in, in how people are performing corporate valuation and thinking about where the value is coming from, exactly as Pete's saying. You know, we're not thinking about it from the top down. You know, it's it's going to inform how we think about it from the bottom up. And I think that's a really big change that a lot of people, you know, um, are still in the process of, of digesting. So uh, Where it's not, yeah. I, go ahead, finish up. I'm sorry. Where it's not a revolution and I think this is kind of what's held up some of the previous work is, uh, is in the actual mechanics of, of how the model, how the valuation comes about. So, yeah, as he was saying, basically we'll come up with revenue forecasts for the firm uh, by decomposing revenues into, you know, how many customers am I going to acquire? How long are they going to stay with me? How many orders are they going to place and how much they're going to spend? That gives us our, our new and improved uh, forecasts for revenues and informs our view for, you know, the durability of the revenues and, and for the rest of the cost structure. Uh, but ultimately, all of that's going to trickle its way down into a very standard DCF model. Um, and so you know, it's something that uh, you know, will allow the finance person to really um, understand you know, where the value is coming from and, and not have to change their fundamental approach uh, when it comes to the the Excel spreadsheet that they're working on, so the, I think that's partially. Yeah. Let me ask you this: Then, then how do you think that then this is going to change kind of the the concept of of corporate valuations moving forward? Then, uh, very simply, yeah, I think it's going to be replacing that that revenue line on the DCF models revenue spreadsheet, and uh, 
and just having that come from from our model instead, you know, so it'd be kind of a different tab on the spreadsheet where, you know, that that forecast is coming from uh, all of those underlying behaviors, which would also be, you know, additional rows that that show up there. Uh, but otherwise, you know, in terms of the actual, you know, process of coming to kind of a point estimate for the share valuation of the firm, uh, yeah, I think that uh, everything else would stay pretty much the same. Uh, and we're already starting to see some some good signs of it. That even though we're we're starting with established firms and private equity and so on, uh, we're already seeing the revolution taking place uh, when it comes to early stage venture capital. So, as any investor, any fan of, of venture capital knows out there, uh, one of the big things that the companies uh, kind of live and die by these days is the LTV to CAC ratio. The idea of mm-hmm. the li- the lifetime value of the customers relative to the cost of customer acquisition. Uh, this by itself is now somewhat commonplace, but it was not part of the vocabulary, let's say, of the first dot-com revolution 20 years ago. Right. We didn't have the, the, the good data sources. We didn't have the analytical capabilities. We just weren't thinking along those lines. So that's already become conventional thinking for venture capitalists. All we're trying to do is basically two or three things. Number one, let's really refine the way that we do that. Let's make sure that when we're talking about lifetime value or customer acquisition costs, that we're doing it really well using... Uh, standard, well-validated approaches that will be very consistent across different kinds of companies. Right. And number two, let's not just stop with early-stage venture capital. Let's take that same mindset of the value of our customers relative to the cost of them and make that as commonplace for established companies as it is for startups. So how do you, how do you think then, and obviously, as I mentioned, there have been a ton of IPOs this year. How does your work looking at customer-based corporate valuation play into a company like Uber or Lyft? They obviously drew a lot of attention earlier this year with their IPOs, and obviously Uber has been carrying, what, about a $70 billion valuation for the last couple of years now. Well, let's talk about both of them. It's a great case in point. Uh, so, so, Dan, you want to start talking about Lyft, and I'll fill in the Uber part? Yeah, so we actually took a very close look at Lyft uh, because they happened to put some really informative customer data in their pre-IPO filing, which in and of itself, I think, was a very good sign that uh, the future ahead is bright for for these sort of methodologies. Uh, Specifically, they put in uh, figures about kind of cohorted revenues by uh, by rider, and, uh, and we were able to use that and kind of connect the dots, that and some of the other measures that they put in the filing, to come up with assessments of, of how healthy that business is. Long story short, uh, you know, we found that there was a lot of value in the business, but not nearly to the extent that they're currently trading at. Uh, Uber, unfortunately, uh, they disclosed very little. They, they disclosed a lot of interesting data, but it was not a whole lot at, at the customer level. And so uh, we kind of had expressed um, disappointment <laughs> publicly about uh, the lack of disclosure uh, that they had. You know, when here they are, you know, we've got this direct competitor of theirs that's uh, putting putting just the right sort of things in their filing. And what was funny was uh, when we put that out over the social media, uh, there were a lot of people who expressed exactly the same sort of feelings that right. um, you know, we're not being given enough information to to really form a, a sound assessment of the health of this business. So to, to jump on that, it's, it's really interesting that a lot of people looked at Uber's uh, 
kind of, uh, I don't want to say poor disclosures, but the lack of customer-level disclosures, yeah. and immediately jump to the conclusion that they have something to hide. Sure. And yeah. they would ask yeah. us, hey, they're hiding something. We said, well, we don't know. We have no idea what their metrics are. We have no idea what their strategic intents are. But it's nice that we're starting to get to the point where investors or just the, the interested public expects to see some of these disclosures and, and kind of has these suspicions uh, when, when they don't see them. That's part of the revolution, that it's not just the, these metrics are kind of nice to know when you can get them, but they're starting to become part of expectations. And as companies are just trained to do that um, or as investors demand it, that's where we're going to start to see just, just big, massive changes in the way valuation happens and in the way that, that valuation is tied in with other ongoing operational activities. Well, Dan, it, it, again, two of the other companies that I saw on, on the website that, that you've had uh, uh, commentary on uh, were Wayfair, which is the online retail uh, furniture seller, uh, and Blue Apron, uh, the, uh, the the meal kit company. So give us a sense of those two. And, and from what I, I could garner, that there is some concerns about return of customer for both of those companies moving forward. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Uh, you know, Wayfair, we obviously have a very long history of <laughs> a very long history with them. But uh, you know, we had first put them in a paper that, that Pete and I had had written for the Journal of Marketing Research, and uh, and in the paper uh, we came to the conclusion that you just the the volume of repeat business after customers were acquired was just not enough to to justify the sort of sky-high valuation that they've been getting. And uh, and we put it out there and ended up getting you know, picked up by you know, everyone from uh, the Wall Street Journal to, to Jim Cramer. Um, and, you know, to their credit, they've continued to to grow revenues very quickly. But, you know, to, to our credit, <laughs> uh, you know, the fundamental assessment of, you know, the free cash flows that they're going to generate uh, has only gotten worse and worse and worse. And all the measures that we had said, uh, you know, we would expect to see weakness here, we've continued to see weakness. And I think that's partially the reason why uh, every single time they report, um, you know, we've ended up getting some sort of a mention in the Wall Street Journal. And uh, you know, there was um, other mentions in, in places like the uh, Fortune magazine. At Blue Apron, uh, similar story but different conclusion. Um, you know, we had inferred that uh, they also were not retaining their customers well, and um, and that they weren't making as much after customers had been acquired as they were spending to, to bring those customers in in the first place. Um, unlike at, at Wayfair, uh, they kind of caved in on themselves a little bit. That uh, you know, the revenues have been dramatically shrinking, mm-hmm. and uh, I think that that would be the ultimate conclusion for Wayfair too. Once they you know had have kind of penetrated their market so much that they're just not that many additional incremental people to acquire. You know, that suddenly they have to, to fall back on the business they're getting from everyone they've brought in already and uh, and there's just no no continuity there. Uh, so yeah, so certainly, you know, Blue Apron we've gotten probably an analogous amount of, of uh, visibility from the press. Uh, but you know, there the conclusion has been, you know, the, the stock has fallen over ninety percent. You know, th- those two examples are interesting. They, they've gotten far more attention for us than anything else. Right. Uh, and unfortunately, both of them were kind of – were basically eviscerating these companies. Uh, and some people just jump to a conclusion that that's kind of our job is to take down the high and mighty. That's not true. Our job is to speak the truth. Right. And it's nice to see that 
that an equal number of our analyses have shown companies are being undervalued by Wall Street. So one that we're super proud of is the analysis we did for Slack, the, the messaging software. Right. When they came out with their filing a, a number of weeks before they actually went public, we said this is an awesome company. And the numbers that were being thrown around as the, the likely valuation stock price we said are about you know forty or fifty percent too low, right? Uh, and we've been proven right on that one. Same thing with the retailers Farfetch and Revolve. So it ends up being fairly balanced. A lot of time we kind of hit the mark, but to the extent that we're off, we're 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 over, we're under. There, there's nothing systematic about it, but uh, but it's just nice to see that in many of these cases, the companies do the stock prices do move in the direction that, right. that we suggest. But with this type of data, Peter, you, you're you're talking about trying to reach the VC venture capitalists. Who else are you trying to reach with this type of data? Who benefits the most at, at, by by having this information moving forward? So it's investors in general. So it's going to be a private equity firms. Uh, we're getting some interest from hedge funds, family offices, but also a lot of companies themselves have been interested. They want to know yeah. what they look like through this lens. Right. So we've worked with a number of firms where they've actually said, we're going to give you the same kinds of metrics that you'd be looking at, like when, when your IPO analyses. We could give you the whole transaction log, but we don't want to, not because of data security. We just want to know what, what we look like as if we were on the outside looking in. Uh, and so it's been great to work with companies who are starting to uh, take that perspective and try to ask themselves, should we be disclosing some of these metrics or not? And what right. internal actions should we be taking to look and to be healthier? Right. And so they can potentially make the changes necessary to turn them on a better path moving forward, looking again forward down the next five to 10 years. And to be proud of offering those kinds of disclosures. Dan, your thoughts? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think there are many companies right now uh, that feel they can see all of their internal data, so they know exactly oftentimes where they stand in terms of unit economics. And if they're making some transition to, to their business model or there's something else that's kind of disrupting them temporarily, mm-hmm. uh, they may feel frustrated that they're being unfairly penalized. So to the extent that they have this, this method that they now understand can help communicate uh, the value of uh, the underlying business, uh, that speaks volumes. So I think you know, we're seeing a number of companies uh, expressing sentiments along those lines. One of the statistics, Dan, that uh, that you mentioned on the website that's important, uh, and I've heard it used quite a bit when you're talking about the cellular industry, uh, and and even to a degree uh, cable companies as well, is the churn rate. The, you know, the amount of people that, that you will turn over over the course of a period of time. How important is that churn rate for some of these companies that, that we've been talking about here the last few minutes? Tremendously so. It's one of the, we call them the five horsemen of CBCV. It's acquisition, uh, retention, ordering, spend, and contribution margin. But that that one of retention is uh, it's probably the most important of those. I mean, you don't want to ignore the other five, but we see a lot of variation from company to company uh, in terms of their retention. Certainly, um, you know, a lot of companies will talk about the retention rate. Uh, we would prefer to talk about the whole retention curve, <laughs> that uh, you know, oftentimes there's uh, some good customers and some bad ones, and, and you really can't infer uh, kind of the mix of good versus bad unless you look at a curve versus a rate. But I think the fact that we're seeing many more companies outside of uh, telecom uh, disclosing those measures is, is again, a, a testament to, uh, to the growing mindshare or you know, realization that you know, customer health is extremely important. And certainly, yeah, that was kind of the key finding going back to Blue Apron. That chart, and 
they had not disclosed their retention curve or the retention rate <laughs> for that matter. Right. But we were able to kind of connect the dots to triangulate our way back into what the retention curve was there. And uh, more than any other uh, data point that, that I had seen in, in the media, it was really uh, insights from that retention curve that were being mentioned uh, the most. So certainly uh, mind share from people, both investors and, and just kind of general, uh, the general popular media you know, would say, would say you know, you're absolutely right that retention is extremely important. And we've really brought a lot to it, that it's not just calling attention to retention. Uh, people understand that that's, that's important already. Uh, but as, as Dan was saying, it's the distinction between the number. You can't talk about what the company's retention rate is, but how it varies across the customers. Yeah. How many of them are kind of flighty and will leave quickly versus how many are loyal and locked in. It turns out there are some very nice systematic patterns to, to understand the, the mix of those two kinds of customers. And we could uh, ferret that out from the data pretty early on, and that's going to be a very good leading indicator, not just of retention and churn patterns, but overall valuation. Uh, again, that was the, the, the heart and soul of that Blue Apron analysis and right. continues to be for everything that we do. So part of it isn't only uh, saying, uh, hey, investors and hey, senior executives, you need to look at these metrics. We also need to look at them carefully. And even uh -huh. if it means that we have to start uh, bringing other words into the vocabulary, like it's the, the variation or the heterogeneity in the retention rates, there's a lot of money riding on that. Absolutely. And I was uh, writing, I have a 10-year-old a, a paper on this issue, the perils of ignoring heterogeneity on customer attention. It was an academic piece, whatever, widely ignored by anyone with a, with a real job. But now people are, are starting to go back and look at some of those papers and look at those methods and their implications and saying, you know what? There is some good stuff in this marketing literature that, that we on Wall Street ought to be paying attention to. So why do you think it's taken so long to kind of come to this mindset? I mean, the, as you said, the data has been there. It just wasn't acted upon or it wasn't released. It wasn't you know, brought and made public. Silos uh, that that this the, the the metrics the mindsets that that uh, exist in in finance and marketing uh, uh, tend to be quite different. There tends to be some I, I don't want to say disrespect but mistrust across the two. <laughs> and too often, it's still true today. A lot of the marketing people are talking about uh, metrics that really uh, that that finance people are kind of skeptical about. They don't trust very much. Right. If we can come up with a set of metrics that both parties should agree on, uh, and I think we've been doing a pretty good job of that, uh, both groups, it's not going to be a compromise. It's going to right. elevate things for, 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 for both of them. So, Dan, to a, I, I guess to a degree, there's a hope of, of kind of breaking down the wall between those two, uh, th those two sectors of business. No, I, that's exactly what we're trying to do. And I think uh, you know, hopefully you know, the, the progress that we've made so far is, you know, as marketing professors in, uh, in financial news media, uh, is kind of a step in the right direction. But yeah, I think it's kind of a two-way – there's kind of two things that we need to happen. I think we're we're seeing more and more of it on both sides. On the marketing side, we need to, to do a better job of speaking in in terms that finance people and accounting people will respect, and uh, you know just talking the lang their language evaluation. Mm -hmm. I think that hopefully you know we in marketing can under can appreciate they've pretty much solved that problem. So we don't need to try and recreate that with some other method that. Uh, maybe a little bit imperfect in their eyes. And on the finance side, I think it's going to then be um, you know, kind of on them to to adopt, you know, acquisition, retention, ordering, and spend as kind of the way that they're going to drive the revenue line. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's kind of a two-way street, uh, but 
yeah, I think we're we're seeing good progress so far. But playing off of something you said at, at the beginning of that last comment, Dan, that we are in a time where there is more coverage of these types of issues and topics, more so than ever before, here with the great Morton Business Radio, Channel 132, a variety of other media outlets, that just the, the, the blogosphere that is out there talking about all of this. So there's a want to to be able to find out this information, maybe even more so than ever before. I think that's that's a success in its own right. I think the fact that we're having these discussions is is a sign that we're, you know, five years from now, uh, we'll have converged. Um, so I think we're, we're getting there, but you know, we still kind of need to wring out a bit of the loosey goosiness and some of the the measures that we've been kind of bandying about, you know, which is, as Pete was alluding to, measures like lifetime value, which you know sometimes the, the finance department will kind of nod their head, but you know, they won't agree with how it's defined because you know, even within marketing, we don't agree with, with right. how that measure is defined. Uh, but yeah, I think it's exactly that having that discussion that's going to allow us to, to converge. Peter? And to kind of bring it full circle, again, I, I came into this a long time ago and aspired to have this kind of conversation, but yeah. never really found the way to get the finance people to listen or the marketing people to say the right stuff until Dan came around. And just last week, in fact, it happens every week, there was a, just a long Twitter discussion about some of these kinds of issues, about LTV to CAC ratios and particular companies and so on. Uh, really interesting discussions. Great to see how many people are, are getting involved and yeah. uh, participating and retweeting. But the other part about it is if you looked at each individual comment, it's getting to the point where it's hard to tell who are the marketing people, who are the finance and accounting people. We're all starting to talk the same language. Uh, and we just need to, to move it out from this 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 niche of mavericks yeah. and to make it just it's just conventional conversation. And we're getting there. Great having you both with us. Thank you, Pete. Great to see you. Dan, great to have you with us as always. Thank you, sir. And thank you for having us back. Thank you. Great seeing you. Peter Fader from here at the Wharton School. Dan McCarthy at Emory University. By the way, if you would like to follow them on Twitter... Theta Equity, at Theta Equity is uh, the Theta Equity Partners Twitter handle, and at Fader P is Peter Fader's Twitter handle. You can follow him on that as well. Don't forget Dan as well. Oh, and Dan McCarthy as well, which is? Dan? D underscore M-C-C-A-R. D D underscore McCarr is the Twitter handle. Thanks, Dan. All the best. Thank you. Pete, great to see you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.